Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, on this show we discuss a lot about how government policies, ultimately government anti-human, anti-industrial policies, destroy energy production and thus unnecessarily hold back, ruin, or even end many, many millions of lives. One aspect of that process that we don't discuss often, though, is what's actually happening behind the scenes. Who are the people who are making the laws, who are enforcing the laws, who are interpreting the laws, and what are the processes by which they're making their decisions? Because in a realm such as energy, every little restriction, every little irrationality that we apply to energy means that real human beings get hurt. And so even with any given set of laws, we can find the problems with them in general. But it's also important to know how are they being enforced? What forces are at work? And part of that is, are those forces following basic rules of law? And today our guest will explain to us how that's not the case at all. He'll tell you some truly horrifying things about how our Environmental Protection Agency works and about how openly anti-industrial, anti-development groups have an enormous, enormous role in our government, despite being completely unelected and not even having jobs. So our guest is Christopher Horner, who is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, And Chris is a very courageous guy. He's been in the public eye in a lot of different ways as an attorney who challenges a lot of the uh, the legality of what I believe are a lot of illegal activities by government, uh, but also using different uh, different methods like the Freedom of, of Information Act to get information that that is crucial that that uh, as as citizens we are owed by the government, but that most people don't want to release things such as emails from different government-funded climate scientists that tell us a lot about their methodology. So, uh, you know, Chris has, a, I think, does really, really important work. And since it's in an area that we haven't talked about much on this show, uh, I think you'll be particularly interested in what he has to say. So we'll be back with Chris Horner on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Chris Horner, Senior Fellow at the Energy and Environment Legal Institute, as well as the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Chris, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. All right. So we're going to be talking about this this particular story involving outside environmental activists getting involved in in crucial government policies. Uh, But since we've never talked about this issue on the show, even though it's a huge issue, I'd like to know 
your opinion on what what is the proper relationship, if any, between outside activists and our regulatory slash enforcement agencies? Well, we are all afforded uh, the right to petition our government, of course. Uh, and you don't have to be a lobbyist or a registered lobbyist, and you don't have to contact Congress. You can work with agencies, but there's a process, and it's prescribed, and it's 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 written in law to manifest our Constitution's guarantee of of equal protection and due process. And and when you discuss the reg the uh, Administrative Procedures Act, the eyes will rightly glaze over. But the point of that act is really to to give the framework for how we maintain these constitutional protections. I mean, this is serious business, of course. If you're not supposed to be able to write laws or rules, which these are laws now, the way Congress operates, they give agencies broad, often very vague grants of authority, and the agencies, believe it or not, will abuse that authority. So you're not supposed to be able to write these laws uh, with buddies behind closed doors. So we, we need to be on an equal footing in compliance with the law that sets forth the, the practices. And that is, if EPA, which is where I do most of my work, um, issues a rule seeking to fundamentally transform our energy system, uh, particularly like electricity production and delivery and so on, um, they can't write it with chosen groups on a Yahoo account. Uh, they have to put everything in the docket so that people have a they know what EPA is up to, what EPA, what information they're considering, how they're operating, give us a chance to comment on it and so on, rebut it. But that's unfortunately not how this EPA in particular is operating. Uh, yes, yeah, so I want to go in a lot of depth on the, the EPA in particular, but I've just noticed in in following just the, the whole environmental landscape and, and the activist, they just seem to have an enormous ability to get involved with uh with everything. I know that that's, that's a broad kind of observation, but just it, it seems like you can basically give money to an environmental group. And in effect, if they have enough money and they have enough resources, they can fundamentally change the, uh, the, the, the practical legal situation because these regulations are basically laws in, in practice. They, you know, they can basically ruin a company's life. So you have something like Keystone or you have all these domestic things is that the case that that given today's framework, you can basically just uh, put money into a group or a group can just basically change what the, the effective law is, whether you're allowed to do something or not, just based on being activists and investing a lot of time? Money is a very big part of it. It's not all of it, but we are giving money to these groups. I mean, the Department of Energy, for example, will, will not only uh, prop up groups to advise it, but they'll stand them up often. These groups are effectively created by DOE to be their expert advisors, to tell them to do what these often career, but but otherwise uh, politically appointed uh, activists in government want to do. So, um, for example, you've got Agencies are captured, not in the in the in the typical sense. EPA, for example, and much of DOE is is captured by the environmentalist movement um, that really spawned it, not the the industries they regulate. So, if you've got a president who vows to bankrupt politically deselected industries, and he has, who gives speech after speech after speech, including three State of the Union speeches, saying we need a certain agenda to quote finally make renewable energy the profitable kind of energy which is not a legitimate object of government. 
okay? It just, it never has been. Robbing Peter to pay Paul is, it may be very common, but it's, 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 it's outside of what our, obviously our system contemplated. But we've got a president now openly vowing it. Well, what would he do? He would staff these agencies with activists, and that's what we found. It, the revolving door is the shorthand way that people know about it. But, for example, EPA brought in activists from the Natural Resources Defense Council and various other groups. And then they cle cleverly said, okay, you used to work for NRDC, so you'll be the liaison to the Sierra Club. So you see, we, we avoided a conflict, and then we'll have somebody else be the liaison to NRDC. But these are all groups that work together in unison with, as you rightly know, enormous budgets. Um, and then they're brought into government. And by the way, and I know we'll get to this, then they continue using the private email account they used previously with the same people to continue the same relationships with their former colleagues to do what they were doing previously, but this time sitting in the government chair. So yes, the groups have an enormous role, but it takes two to tango. And whether it's the career bureaucrat who in a, in a largely self-selecting universe has decided that being at EPA is how they'll change the world, um, or the political appointee, the revolving door, they're, they're dancing with their buddies from their prior life. Well, it's interesting that you use the expression change the world as if that's a proper motive for going into an enforcement job. Right. Or journalism. I mean, but we, we sort of shrug at journalism, right? Well, you see activist journalism and it is people who, well, this is how I'm going to make a difference. And then absolutely right. Some will either through a, a later in life revelation through osmosis, uh, um, as they hang around this type, people gravitate to EPA because they they really have an axe to grind over something. They they took an environmental law course or who knows what it was, um, and they decided they'd go work for EPA. Well, there is an awful lot of that, and unfortunately, it, it quite plainly, because of our laws being what they are, I read their mail, and it's <laughs> quite clear the way um, many of them view their jobs. Some of them are saying, you know, congratulations on this. We now have taken a giant step toward making the world a better place. Your job as the executive branch, and the name kind of gives it away, is to execute the law. But that's really a far cry from how things work. Well, well, since, since you mentioned it, I, I just wanted to uh, ask you for, for the sake of the audience, because they might not know. You said that you, you read the people's email. Could you elaborate on, on what you've done? Because in some quarters, you've become quite notorious for uh, knowing a lot about what they're saying. Right. Well, as you know, a man once said, I'm paying for this microphone. Uh, we're paying for those, those computers, and these are public records. And when we find, for example, a false identity, it's been misreported. When we find the, for the first time ever, as far as anyone knows, the head of an agency, in this case EPA, creating a false identity email account, it's of great public interest. It's not a private email account, as they say. It's not, as her lawyer said, her consigliere said, when asking if she should share this with Cass Sunstein at OMB, the secret email account, it's a public email account, whether or not you adopt a false persona. These are public records to show what the Supreme Court said in its first FOIA case, Freedom of Information Act. Uh, the people have a right to know what their government is up to. And so over time, a lot of those conversations that used to be conducted by sticking your head in the door are conducted by text message and email. And what we have found is with this revolving door, these transparency laws are more important than ever. There's a reason Barack Obama vowed 
the most transparent administration in history, and that is because he knew people wanted this. We have laws put in place already, which the bureaucrats then turn into withholding laws as opposed to disclosure laws. So what we've been doing is saying, look, these are public records. You've chosen to staff these agencies with, with activists who we now have learned have chosen to continue using their Yahoo and Gmail and Verizon accounts to continue working with their former colleagues in the activist community. We are going to aggressively pursue these public records, which you are going to great lengths to keep the public from seeing. So that's what I mean when I say I read their mail. Um, it's not always a meeting at Starbucks, for example. There's a Starbucks at the JW Marriott across the street from EPA. We know where that that is where this EPA goes to meet with Sierra Club, for example. Um, and do that instead of turning to Yahoo. If you're going to engage in underhanded behavior, which is what moving government offline or to Gmail is, don't do it. If you need to <laughs> liaise with your buddies, you should go to Starbucks. But they're breaking laws when they start corresponding offline or giving people a leg up in, in creating laws. So we find this very important and, and we're, we're dedicated to uh, letting the people know, what, as the Supremes said, what your government is up to. Now, you've also been involved in this in government funded science, right? Yes, yes, because it's this is another development we've seen in recent years. Um, you have to go back and go to the paragraph following the military-industrial complex warning that President Eisenhower gave in his farewell speech. Uh, the next paragraph was about an academic, a scientific government complex. He saw this coming because these are people too. And we've seen the academy become very active participants in the policymaking process. Again, speaking of self-selecting universes, we know about the faculty lounge, at least you know, with rare exception, what the faculty lounge is. Um, these are people dedicated to using their generally taxpayer-funded position to advocating for a greater role and funding for them through, in part, a greater role and funding for government. And so when, for example, ClimateGate broke, you have to remember the genesis of that. That was a thousand emails which were apparently leaked. This, it, you, you can't credibly say hacked. They were leaked after a series of failed open records requests. You have to remember these, these, these emails were covered by Virginia's Freedom of Information Act and so on and so on. And yet the, the requesters kept getting stymied with these, these bogus excuses. And then finally, when all excuses had run out, uh, it seems somebody who'd had enough leaked them. And what they leaked was publicly funded academics saying things like, I'll destroy these emails before I let the public see them. And they're talking about their publicly funded work, which is quite clearly, according to the same emails, intended to drive policy what they call the cause in these emails. So we see the increasing role the academy is playing in policymaking. We see in very, very gory detail how they're doing it in this, in the energy or anti-energy context. And so we have sought using state freedom of information laws and federal, um, these correspondence, which again, will reflect what they're up to using enormous sums of taxpayer money expressly to drive policy and uh, to affect, for example, what 
then-candidate Obama vowed would be bankrupting companies because they're politically deselected in order to finally make his buddies profitable. That's just, you know, we object to that and we're allowed to. So we're using these laws to try to educate the public. And it's spun as you're, you're, you're viciously attacking academics, you're going after them. No, again, these aren't their emails. It's not private emails. You'll notice that it's Michael Mann usually, but wherever we go, we're in court in Arizona now. We're in court in Virginia now. We had a hearing in Richmond last week. Uh, academics calling for RICO investigations of, of political opponents for political speech. We're always told they're seeking their private emails. No. I know their private accounts. They pop up in these. We're not seeking the private accounts. We're seeking public records. You, not only did you sign up to it, in UVA's case, University of Virginia, we have the pieces of paper. You signed up to it saying, if I'm going to conduct university business, um, you know, or, or use the university account, I have no expectation of privacy, this is being assigned for university business. And using your position in these ways is university business. So it's it, there's a lot of misunderstanding. It's, it's not accidental misunderstanding. It, there's an intentional spin to change the subject. Because when the public finds out how their taxpayer dollars are being used, they generally don't like it in this context. Yeah, although th- this particular case isn't, or, or set of cases isn't the subject of today's show. I, I think it's, I just want to point out to listeners that this is very important and it's very rare that these people are being challenged and, and that we get any, any kind of sunlight into what happens in these academic institutions. And if you haven't been in them or been close to people who are in them, it, it's very easy to get these very distorted utopian ideas of how the government funded scientific monopoly establishment works. So I would just ask you, Chris, um, is this, is this cause something people can support financially? Uh, and if so, how do they do that? We are offering the most sincere form of, of flattery to, to the other side by imitating them. Um, I, I even received a Washington Post editorial about me personally trying to use the freedom, the Virginia Freedom of Information Act they cited the title of one of my books with this this tone, and he wants access to public records. I don't think so. These laws, they believe, were drafted for them, by them, for them. These are our laws. They apply to everybody, so we're doing what the other 501c3 nonprofit groups are doing. Uh, so you can support the Competitive Enterprise Institute as a charitable organization, the Energy and Environment Legal Institute as a charitable organization, doing work similar to... Um, what other groups are doing and it's fair for this context to recognize that yes we have a different perspective but it's not fair as the guardian reporters and others have told me should be the case to interpret the law based upon what our perspective is these are your records and we're trying to get them for you uh great one more question before we go to the epa uh, example in depth. You've mentioned a couple times the term revolving door, which which I know and people in D.C. know, but maybe all the listeners don't know. So what is the revolving door? Well, I'll, I'll use one case in particular because it's the most egregious we've found. Um, well, okay, here. Bob Perciuseppe was the uh, deputy administrator of EPA, I believe. And he continued to use his Audubon Society email account. Um, while at EPA, and then rotated back to a pressure group. By the way, these these groups like Sierra Club, they're not John Muir's group anymore. These aren't your father's environmentalist groups. These are 
These are activist ideological groups. And what happens is their lawyers will then move into government to continue their mission, as they view it, or the cause, as some put it in emails. But this time sitting across the table. I'll give you an example. Sierra Club, the head of their anti-coal campaign, was emailing Michael Gu, a former Natural Resources Defense Council lawyer, now at EPA, telling him that Sierra Club couldn't make this meeting with Gina McCarthy that day. Could Goo be sure to attend? Well, Goo's with EPA at this point, but you never know it from the emails. It's like, hey, I can't be there, but I want to be, I want to make sure my perspective is, you know, we're represented at the table. Sure, you'll be sitting on EPA's side of the table, but anyway, I need you to be there. Um, they will just essentially continue their, pick up the, the, the cause where they left off, but this time in government, and then they'll rotate back out. In this case, Goo has left to become a lobbyist for industry that uh, utilities promoting the same agenda as Sierra Club. So the revolving door can, can be, you know, you can go from a green group to EPA to rent-seeking industry um, or, and then back into green groups. But what happens is they just, they, they will rotate in government, out of government, in government, out of government, and they will work with the partners then, and sadly it's this way, the government's, the agency's partners in industry that shares the regulator's perspective and green groups that share the regulator's perspective and then back again. But this is a broader phenomenon too, right? Just in terms of you have this, I mean, I think for in part because the, the government wields so much coercive influence and has the ability to transfer large amounts of money in, in the quote-unquote private sector of consultants and whatnot. It's, it's very valuable to have somebody who has lots of buddies in the government, so they can go to the government, and then they can make lots of money outside the government. They can go back in the government. That's that's true of a lot of areas of uh, the whole welfare regulatory state, right? Right. It's 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 why, for example, it was the 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 origin of another of, of President Obama's ostentatious promises, then promiscuously broken. The uh, I will I will not hire any lobbyist in my administration, except for, unless you want to sign a, sign a waiver, uh, and, and then you know I'll. I'll give you a waiver. And he staffed his administration with lobbyists. Why? Because those were the people who are most familiar with what he wants to do. You're, you're coming in to adopt an activist agenda. Why not hire the activists? Now, it can, it can apply in any context, and it can apply with industry, too. Um, it seems to be, it could even apply with think tanks, which, which have a perspective. But you, you generally, sure, look, a president will have, I forget the number, between 10 and 20,000 Schedule C appointees. Uh, I imagine that in a Republican administration, there'd be, you know, 40% of them will be the same people no matter who's elected, and, and in a Democrat, same thing. But um, you're going to staff them not generally from your state, but from the groups with people who've been working on an agenda you share. So it's, it's, it makes sense to them. But the problem is, and it brings us back to where we started, that's fine. You just have to uh, recuse yourself where there's a conflict, and we found they don't. You have to try to understand you are no longer wearing your NRDC activist hat. You're now an executive branch employee, and you have to behave like it. And therein lies the rub. We're finding that they simply are coming in to continue being the same activist axe grinders. And I'll tell you where this is going. I mean, this is a very important point. Of course you're going to bring in expertise. That makes perfect sense. The problem is, when you move from NRDC or Sierra Club into EPA, then you promulgate rules, and we found they do them illegally on Yahoo accounts and so on. 
Well, then it goes to court. And what happens is the agency claims there's an ambiguity. There's always an ambiguity somewhere. That explains their interpretation. When you use that word, then the courts say, well, you're the experts. I will defer to you. It's, it's the deference concept that has now run amok. What happens is you bring in axe grinders who continue their axe grinding. And then when they have to defend it in court, they say, but your honor, I'm an agency expert. And the courts too often say, well, you're right. You are the expert. Well, you should not grant this deference, which is the flag under which so many abusive rules have, have flown to safety when you're not behaving as an agency expert, but instead just simply as an NRDC activist who's now doing the same gig at EPA. This is a tremendous problem. You're going to staff your agency with experts. The problem is you have to come in and understand you really are supposed to now be an executive employee and try to check some of the bias at the door. And as opposed to bringing in experts, you bring in axe grinding experts, they tend to forget to drop the bias. Let's look at how this applies in depth with the, the EPA case that you've been working on. So what's, uh, what's, what's before, in, independent of the lobbyists initially, what, like what, what is the issue at stake and how should it have been handled? Okay, well, we're seeing a circumvention of our system on, on many levels. So let's step back. We remember the president promising to bankrupt companies he didn't like uh, to finally make companies he did like profitable. Coal companies in particular, right? Right. So bankrupt coal or utilities who tried to burn coal and to finally make renewables profitable. Renewables obviously being a very valuable constituency uh, to his party particularly, but to politicians generally. Um, so he tries cap-and-trade legislation to do this. It passes the House. The voters rebel. Harry Reid, controlled Senate, refuses to take it up. It dies. So he decides he doesn't need the democratic process, as we have found on many occasions when that stands in his way, the thing that must go is the democratic process. Things that should properly be decided there are no longer decided there. In this case, EPA says, well, then we'll regulate anyway and we'll invent, we will discover new authorities, something that the Supreme Court recently slapped down this very same agency for doing. When you discover, after decades of interpreting a law, suddenly a new enormous authority buried in that law, we're going to give it very close scrutiny. Um, they discovered that they could regulate power plants under these two provisions of the law um, and in, in a revolutionary way. And they set about doing this in a way that even the New York Times blushed at, writing an article about the NRDC's influence on these, these rules to regulate existing power plants and then rules to regulate new sources. Uh, and, and they're going to, I mean, it's not stopping at power plants, of course, Everybody should understand nothing ever proposed in the name of climate change would detectively impact the climate. So you can convince yourself that it's about climate. It's just not rationally about climate. So they say they're going to regulate power plants, bankrupt those they don't like, and so on. And they hire a bunch of activists to write the rule. They hire in the woman who argued the case to give them the authority in the first place, not under these provisions, but just generally. They bring her in to run this agenda. And I have a lot of emails that suggest from the context that they're heavily redacted that they knew she probably shouldn't have been doing this. I mean, that, that, that's a conflict. And so she organizes the agenda. They, they, they then delegate it to what emails show was somebody they were very concerned must be on the team. His name was Michael Gu, the former NRDC lawyer. And the emails are at the administrator level. Is Michael on the team? Yes, Michael's on the team. Okay, who? And then he forwards that around to a couple buddies at the agency. 
and then proceeds to assemble his own team of experts outside the agency. The Clean, uh, I think it's called the Clean Air Trust. Uh, uh, that may not be their name, and uh, Sierra Club particularly, but also his former NRDC colleagues. And he uses his Yahoo account to draft the options with them, actually have them draft the options for these rules. And the emails are comical. I mean, there are some Darwin Award nominees in there where <laughs> one official says, hey, do you have a, a private account? I need to make some introductions. He says, yes, I have one. He gives it to her. Do I need another? And she says, not for my peeps, but not necessary for my peeps, but probably for others. Probably indeed. Some of these would say, for example, the Sierra Club sent him a memo that concluded at the end of two pages, it was a two-page walkthrough of EPA can therefore create a standard that no power plant can meet. Okay. Uh, no coal-fired power plant. And he sent it to the Yahoo account saying, attached is a memo I didn't want to send in public. Okay. Now you're wondering how, maybe how, how did we get these and many, many others. It's because Goo is a lawyer. And when you leave an agency, unless your name's Hillary Clinton, you have to sign a separation form promising that you don't have any uh, agency records elsewhere on a thumb drive, another email account, and so on. EPA's separation form, that's the very first question. Now, soon before Gu was going to leave over to DOE, Department of Energy, um, he turned over these emails late August 2013. The problem was they were drafting these rules that were already the subject of a rulemaking process two and a half years ago and never produced the emails to the agency. So congressional oversight requests for them, our FOIA requests for them, they were being denied everybody until soon before he left, in which, at which time he, he sent them all over to his, his private account. So there are emails from NRDC setting forth their standards to the Yahoo account. Uh, him writing NRDC and saying we could use a piece in uh, January explaining that no coal is being built, so there's no impact anyway. And Wait, sure, are you serious? Yeah, and dutifully, David Hawkins of NRDC then produced that, and he wrote it on Huffington Post at the guy's request. Uh, he would send, uh, NRDC would send their draft letters to the Wall Street Journal, past Michael Goo at EPA on his Yahoo account about EPA work. Um, Clean Air, again, uh, Trust, I forget, some group out of Maine, actually took him to task for not being an expert. Remember, they're seeking to protect these rules on the basis of being agency experts. And in the emails, he sends them a draft, and they essentially said, look, we got this. You can't find this issue with both hands. Uh, you got to keep your standards straight. You got to keep your met metrics straight, your units straight. And they took over and rewrote his standard. They sent it to him. The next day, he sends it to Sierra Club using Yahoo!, and it's this time stamped draft deliberative, meaning it is now agency product. And it was drafted by the Clean Air in, in something trust, Clean Air Activist Trust. Um, these, this group of activists, and, they, and, and one of the emails says, they list the people at this group who are working with officials in EPA on which aspects of this. So it's really a confession. It's a series of confessions. One of them says, hey, look, I know you're briefing the administrator today, so here's our final case, essentially. And the next one says, we wanted to follow up on your readout of the meeting with the administrator. In other words, when this guy who drafted the options 
which actually were drafted by green groups on a Yahoo account. Presented them to the administrator. He would then come back out of the meeting and call them and give them the readout of the meeting. What does that mean? He's placing them at the table in the rulemaking pro process. And, and these options memos don't go to the administrator until they're pretty fully baked. I mean, top to bottom, we show that EPA deserves no deference that they let outside activists write these rules through a conduit, a former outside activist, activist who was brought in, who then continued to work with them, but offline on a Yahoo account, which several of the emails confessed was to make sure people don't see it. The downfall was he's a lawyer presented with a form saying, I don't have anything, and I, I, I'm just assuming at this point, but his conscience said, I better not sign this, uh, or I better turn these things over. And one more thing, we're now getting text messages. They're incomplete. They're cut off and so on, but we made a point of also saying, now give us the texts, because we've discovered not only was the, the woman in charge of this, now in charge of the agency named Gina McCarthy, she had turned to text messaging when the, when the emails became a focus of Freedom of Information Act requests. She had 5,350 texts over three years on her EPA phone assigned for EPA business, every single one of which she deleted, every single one of which she told us through DOJ was personal. Pause, wait for laughter. So we know they were turning to texts. We know they were turning to private email. We know they were turning to various other means. Uh, we found the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy is setting up servers where sort of safe houses where you could drop in, housed by private universities like Stanford, not subject to these laws and so on. They're very innovative. But some of the text messages that we're getting in clipped off form include, for example, a reporter from Politico texting the EPA official, telling him, check your Yahoo account. I have some quotes I want to use. So we're not looking for this reporter to, to write on this story anytime soon as news because he was participating in this. Uh, he was using the official's Yahoo account, too, to get to develop quotes for him to sign off on on his coverage of this. Um, yeah, I will, could, could he argue that that's just fact-checking or something? Well, the, the, the EPA official should know. The, it's the EPA official who is bound by these requirements that he not conduct agency business on other than agency systems, and if he does, he has to copy his agency account. You can, you're can you stuck on an ice flow, and, and the BlackBerry you have only is getting access to your Yahoo account. Okay, you can use that, but you have to hit copy and CC your agency account. Mm -hmm. That It wasn't the case. I've got lobbyists. One lobbyist for something called the Clean Energy Group is not only texting the guy, but he's using his Yahoo account to send him talking points for the administrator. He sends him an email on Yahoo. This is the lobbyist for the Clean Energy Group who's advocating for this, this agenda, this shared agenda with the Green Groups. And he, he emails Michael Goode, his Yahoo account, to forward him an email he sent to the chief lawyer involved on his Gmail account in which he says, please send this to the administrator. I don't have her private account, and I wouldn't want this on an agency system. So I think you see that this has become a problem. Uh, it's systemic, it's top to bottom, it started at the top. The New York Times and Mother Jones even wrote about the administration of the White House moving over to Caribou Coffee to have their conversations with lobbyists to avoid having the lobbyists sign in on the visitor logs and then using private email accounts to arrange the meetings. So it's, it's top to bottom, it's rotting from the head down. Our laws have covered all of this. If, if 
the specificity is catching up to the underhandedness, but it's been clear all along what you are and are not permitted to do, and they're getting very innovative to to try to circumvent that. Though, again, it's clear what you, you must and must not do. They're just adapting and, and trying not to get caught. It just, it's so, just, if we think about the ideal uh, of the founding of this country, or an expression at least that, that used to be cited in this country, a government of laws, not of men, we see that just at every level, it, it just is completely destroyed from the first thing you mentioned, where Obama doesn't like the law or the non-law in the case of cap and trade, and just decides, well, I'm going to unilaterally create an effective law. And then even the people in the process don't like the standard process, so they need to get all of these outside activists involved to get, in my view, an even worse version, but certainly an even more distorted version of it. I mean, what would the Founding Fathers say about this? They might, they might capture it with a, a phrase that the personnel is policy, which they'd probably say, you know, go inside my own hide the kids and bring my musket. <laughs> but they would probably say, look, you, I can capture these abuses with personnel as policy. You are bringing in axe grinders. We have a system where everyone is supposed to be, be equal under the law, equal, equal opportunity to comment on how these laws participate in how these laws, and these rules are laws. Again, Congress has delegated odiously delegated its, its lawmaking authority to agencies, and courts have increasingly struggled at that, to the point it's not even an issue. Anymore. And they are bringing in axe grinders for the purpose of effectively writing laws. Going around, it's, it's the old unelected bureaucrat. Well, unelected is one thing, but bringing in obvious ideological actors who, if they want to do this, should run for office themselves, to write the laws, not get a clever position to execute the laws that really has become a law-writing position. So I have a feeling our founding fathers would get rather angry and, um, and, and, and in a well-armed fashion. I mean, this is, it's, it is thoroughly outrageous. It is truly outrageous. And I have to tell you, there is insufficient resistance in Washington to doing this, to, to doing anything about this, to, to vacating rules on the basis of what we call ex parte communications, because it is so frequent, I can tell you in various contexts, whether it's the president now deciding that obvious treaties aren't treaties because he say they aren't, and Congress going, well, what if a Republican president wants to do this someday? as the reason to not stand in his way. Well, that attitude that what if we want to do it, um, we may need this someday, is, is ju I'll just say it's, it's far too prevalent. And so you know, we've really slipped the rails here. Uh, this is not purely a Democrat thing. This is a governance thing. It, it seems like there's at least two dynamics that always go on with this. One is just that there's no respect for law at all, just as, as that, that law actually matters and that the rule of law actually matters. 
such that you will strike down something, even if it's, if it's on an important issue. And I disagree with just about all of these laws or regulations. But even let's say it was it was in the right spirit, it was a, a net improvement. But if it's not actually legal, if it's violating the system, that that should be viewed as just catastrophic in terms of what that does to the future of the republic. So there seems to be no interest in that. And then related to that, the the opponents of certain industries, particularly the fossil fuel industry, the nuclear industry, have had this moral upper hand whereby people think, well, it's the right thing to do. And even the industry is often pretty compliant. So Obama goes on this crusade and nobody's really questioning, well, is this a moral crusade? Is he actually being moral by bankrupting the coal industry and making it much more difficult to produce hydrocarbon uh, Energy. I'm curious what you think of how this moral dimension interacts with the legal dimension. First, the morality has been turned on its head completely and utterly, and it's 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 a, it's an abdication uh, of almost everybody. You are a rare exception um, to not stand up and say, "Wait a second. When you, you the syllogism is deeply flawed. Uh, my my church's mission includes social justice." The social justice mission includes the global warming agenda. Ergo, my church's mission includes the global warming agenda. Well, let's take a look at where the president used to insist we look to see how this agenda works out and oddly no longer tells us to look. Europe, they're killing seniors by the tens of thousands in each and every country through what's called fuel poverty over there, energy poverty, essentially hypothermia. You don't have to be at 32 degrees Fahrenheit to freeze to death, okay? And seniors are burning books to the point that it's in the news. You can find the video at the e Legal's YouTube page. We've got a lot of headlines. Pensioners burn books to keep warm. Bookstore employees being interviewed saying, you know, we think burning books is wrong, but the old boy wants to stay alive. And so they've, they've really, I see hardback copies of thick books are really, really popular now. We're going to destroy them anyway. And well, they need to stay warm at night and they can't afford their energy bill anymore. Uh, this is now epidemic over there. It's, I mean, they have a term. The Germans invented the term fuel poverty. It's now it's, it's used throughout the media, but they're, they, they, they're scrambling. They just can't figure out. You impose an agenda that says it will necessarily, okay, necessarily was more important than skyrocket in the president's promise, necessarily skyrocket your electricity bills. Um, and then you're wondering why seniors are dropping dead by the tens of thousands. I mean, expecting, I think the Greens may be inflating the figures or get the fainting couch. The Greens may be inflating the figures because they're pushing an agenda here, which is more money for their energy efficiency and insulation programs and other things. But there's no doubt that there's been a, there's been a radical spike in deaths from fuel poverty throughout Europe where this agenda is being imposed. And it's being sold now, including by the, the Pope, as a moral agenda. Well, you've got the morality completely turned on its head. I mean, the, the, the legality is almost a lost cause. If you just, to divert real quickly, you listen to the debate over the Supreme Court justice. Well, I don't want to be, I don't want to judge who's against children. You wouldn't rule this way. You're not against children. I'm actually here to rule on the law. What's this done? <laughs> and that is a complete afterthought. Well, you, it's outcome-based jurisprudence is what they're demanding, and they're both rhetorically and in fact. So the legality is something we, we desperately got to try to rein in because Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders both openly speak, as does, uh, I think I've heard Schumer, Senator Charles Schumer speaking this way too, talking about, well, we want to judge who will rule the following way. You don't have the facts in front of you. You want this outcome. 
Well, you're the lawmakers, okay? Um, so we've got the law issue to deal with, the legality of this. But the morality is, to me, this is, given that they have now, it's no longer about the climate, really, it's about the morality. Nothing ever proposed would detect the impact of the climate. They say, well, shouldn't we do something? Um, this is something, therefore we must do this. Well, no, we both, I, I used to hear this on campus all the time, this man proposes doing something, you know, doing nothing. Well, so do you, sir. I just propose we stop killing people. Okay, you are killing the most vulnerable, inescapably, for no impact. Holman Jenkins, the Wall Street Journal columnist, had, had a very great point that I like to, I turn the prism just a bit. He says, what's the right amount of money to spend for no impact on climate? It's an excellent question, because as our friends on the left would say, just, just give me the figure, then we can have that discussion. Well, turn the prism a bit and say, what's the right number of seniors in the poor to kill for no impact on climate? What's the right number of the most vulnerable to kill prematurely for no impact, for a, for a fashionable gesture? Just, just give me the figure of the, the over-under for acceptable losses for, your, for you to feel good. Um, and then we can have that conversation because there is no, no claim that they will impact the climate with this. It is therefore a gesture, whether they like the term or not. And they're killing people. And that is not speculative. That's not a statistical projected hundredth of a degree in tenth in a hundred years. These are bodies. I mean, you, they're identifiable bodies, people dying from hypothermia. Search government websites about the warnings for seniors in hypothermia. Ask why we have these programs like it. Because this harms the seniors and the poor first and worst, and yet it is it's, it's not just foreseeable and foreseen. It was, as the president said, necessary. This is the known deliberate outcome. And you're killing people. And then running around saying, why, why are the seniors dying? I just can't understand. I think that's a really powerful example. And I'd encourage people to just think about the fact that they're dying from cold. They're dying from too much cold. And what that points to is just that climate is inherently volatile and vicious to human beings unless we have the industry and technology to protect ourselves from it. And so that, that always has to be priority number one, not whether it's on average one degree hotter or colder, so to speak, because if you can deal with 102 and you have technology, you can deal with 103. And if you can deal with zero, you can deal with negative one. Uh, but if you can't deal with climate period, which you can't if you have uh, no energy or overpriced energy, or to the extent you have overpriced energy, then you die. So, but think then about the situation of people who don't just have fuel poverty, but but fuel absence. That's that's their default state. So we we see we see Europe uh, regressing back to poverty and therefore climate vulnerability. Uh, and, you know, we've got billions of people in the world who already have this. So, so the idea that they're concerned with climate for human purposes is is completely invalid. They're they're concerned with it as an example of. Uh, how it's wrong for man to have any impact on nature right. whatsoever. Right. And, they don't think it's activity. Yeah. It's a proxy. Climate is a proxy for, uh, they want other, what, by the way, when environmentalist says people shouldn't, people, it's, remember, you just need to insert other people because they won't do it for you. What they mean is other people. This is a wealthy white Western movement. It is not, um, go to Haiti and ask them, so are you all going to be part of the Paris Treaty? I mean, I'm, I'm really concerned about what percentage you're going to promise. And they'll <laughs> you and say, you know what? Uh, I have first-order needs, food, fuel, medicine, and shelter. 
when that storm comes, I mean, I'll get rich and I'll, I'll regulate parts per thousand. Then I'll get really rich and regulate parts per million. Then I'll get fantastically rich and pretend I can control the weather. But until then, uh, although nobody says you actually will, until then I'm going to try to get wealthier because wealthier is healthier. And by the way, wealthier is cleaner. You can look at Detroit or you can look at Haiti and then you can look where you and I live. Why? Rich societies and rich communities place uh, an economic value on going from parts per thousand to parts per million to parts per trillion and in various media, water, soil, air, and so on. Wealthy countries, the, the, the myth is, uh, you know, remember Maurice Strong, I testified next to him one time, and it just you just couldn't believe such a, a mildly spoken man would say things like, wealth is the disease, not the cure, because he's rich. Um, <laughs> wealthier is healthier, wealthier is cleaner, wealthier is more resilient. When that storm happens, and it will, when the heat wave comes, and it will, when the cold snap, the polar vortex comes, and it will, and there's no evidence that these, all of the indicators they promised are outside of natural variability. They're cyclical. There's no evidence you're outside of that. So those storms will come. Where do you want to be, Florida or Bangladesh? We know the answer, and we know why. And every answer comes down to wealth, institutions, automobility, transportation, uh, infrastructure, uh, emergency services, communications, you name it. It all comes to resiliency. It comes down to wealth. The Bangladeshis would much rather be in Florida do we want more Florida or more Bangladesh? The problem is these people, when pressed, will always tell you that wealth is the disease. They want more Bangladesh, I hate to say, but generally none of them seem to think this will ever happen to them. And other people, it doesn't seem to occur to many of them, are people too. So they come up with these theories that, you know, Dick Lindzen at MIT used to joke well, it warmed 20 degrees in Boston today, Chris, from morning to noon. I, I hate to see the species I'm going to have to sweep off my doorstep tomorrow. Because, <laughs> you know, we know they can't survive a two-degree difference. So it just went up 30 degrees today from, from morning to noon. Good heavens, what's going to happen? Well, two of the richest societies in the world are what? Iceland and Singapore. And they have identical perfect climates, right? So. <laughs> yeah, or even just within the U.S., all, all the, the whole range of climates and, and we can uh, cope with or even master all of them. So yeah, I, I like how your work captures both the uh, the legal, you know, basically the the legal atrocities that are being committed, but also the 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 moral slash human significance of all of these things. And so, as the final question, where are you in this process, and what can we do to help? Uh, well, wealthier is healthier. So obviously, supporting competitive enterprise institute, CEI.org, and uh, eelegal.org, Energy Environment Legal, that's, that's the groups that are doing this work. Uh, where we are is we, we've set forth uh, the chronology of how the particular abuse I just went through in most detail, the EPA, Global Warming Rules, uh, and we have prepared it for the court, the D.C. Circuit, which is hearing these rules, briefing to be done by June, uh, argument in June, briefing to be done by April. Uh, rules that have been stayed thanks to the Supreme Court, but they're before the D.C. Circuit. And we have asked for permission to add a supplemental brief, and we've told the court this is what we found. And the problem is we were the only people who wanted to make this point to the court. Um, I'll leave it to your listeners to decide why. But anyway, we were the only ones who wanted to argue that rules should be vacated when they're just unlawfully on Yahoo account uh, by axe grinders who deserve no deference. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it's long. Uh, 
And so that's the next step. That's where we are. We've compiled this. We are we are owed more Michael Goo productions. But once we got, if you want to see, uh, you can see the report on this at eelegal.org. And if you look at a December 18 or 19 Wall Street Journal editorial called The EPA's Secret Staff, uh, discussing our findings before we really revealed the rest of what we have. Um, EPA has begun really slow walking their productions now that they've seen just how valuable these are for the legal process. So we're owed more. We expect to get more. And uh, we expect to tell the court uh, everything we can if it allows us to. And we just uh, hope we're allowed to. Otherwise, we'll try to find another way. All right, Chris. Well, I really admire your persistence. And uh, I hope listeners check out your work. And hopefully some of them will support uh, the work. But So thank you for that. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Alex. And by the way, thank you for what you do. It, you, you do spectacular work. And it, I, I've never met you, but I greatly appreciate it. Thanks again to Chris Horner for sharing his observations and insights about the whole regulatory slash legal slash influence system. Uh, there's a lot there that I didn't know, and uh, hopefully you learned a lot as well. And also, as I said, I really appreciate his his courage in in doing all of this, and just just the fact that he goes out there and fights because it's not not that common to see, and therefore it's it should be particularly appreciated. So uh, you know you can definitely support his work. I mentioned I don't usually mention that as as a thing, but. Uh, in this case, we'll have links to the two organizations he's affiliated with, and uh, you know, feel free to look into what they do, and see if it's something that that you want to support. But certainly, I think his work is very, very important. All right, what else is going on? Well, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Uh, still working a lot on energy messaging for the upcoming election. Been doing a bunch publicly, a bunch behind the scenes. If you want to see the basic platform, it's at americasenergyopportunity.com. That's americasenergyopportunity.com. And make sure to sign that and to spread it to others. Uh, as I usually stress, most importantly, make sure you're on our mailing list, which is at industrialprogress.com. We have some Cool new content that I'm working on with Stefan Hen uh, to, to give you a weekly dose of intellectual ammunition. Perhaps that's mixing metaphors with a dose and ammunition, but you know what I mean. All right. Well, as I've said on pre uh, on as I said on the last episode, we're not going to be doing the show weekly for a little while just because I have some other projects I'm working on, uh, but we will do it periodically. So hopefully you enjoyed this one. So I can't say next week we'll be back, but next time when we're back, we'll definitely have another great guest and another great topic. So until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.